You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Ted Williams was a baseball player. Not just a baseball player. He was one of the greatest. Right, but since I'm not usually up on sports, Seth, I'm just giving the basics. And so this is what I know about Ted Williams. He was an American left fielder who broke into the majors in 1939. Right, right, playing for the Boston Red Sox. He was a legend. Ted Williams was a sight unlike any other. Few hitters stepped up to the plate with more confidence. He had that thing, (laughs) whatever that thing is. He was an athlete who was frankly a thrill to watch on the field. He would step up to the plate and he would focus in on that pitcher and he would watch that pitch. He could see, they say, the stitches on the ball as it turned around and he would crack that bat and send that ball on a trajectory unlike any other. Everyone who saw it live was just left breathless. I wish I could have seen that, Molly, but of course, I wasn't alive then, or at least not for the early part of his career. Anyhow, the story of Ted Williams is a great sports story, but this is Big Picture Science, a science show. Right, so the science question is, how did he do it? What made Ted Williams one of the all-time great hitters? Was it something he was born with? Now, Seth, did you play baseball ever? Well, not very well. I'll be honest with you. I was forced to play baseball during summer camp when I was a kid. I mean, I had to do that because all the kids did it. And if they, if I didn't play, they would tease me mercilessly, which they were very fond of doing. <laughs> well, could you have been a great baseball player, do you think, had you just practiced enough? Uh, no, I don't think so. Absolutely no way. I had a hard time even getting a walk. I wasn't very good at bat, and honestly, I wasn't even very good in the field. They would put me in right field where they figured I wouldn't do too much damage. Molly, I could have played baseball till the cows returned Shea knew and uh, never would have gotten good at it. So, Seth, why do you think you weren't very good at baseball? Well, to be honest, I just wasn't very coordinated. I mean, I wasn't very good at dancing either, and I took a lot of dance lessons. I mean, you know, when you're a kid and, and the girls are all looking at the guys who can dance, you want to learn how to dance well. And mm-hmm. I took lots of lessons, but it just didn't help. I wasn't very good at dancing. I wasn't very good at baseball. And I would look at the kids who were, and I realized whatever they had, there was no way I was going to be able to get to that. So whatever they have was something they were born with. That's what you're saying. That was my impression. They just came wired to be able to do those things. Aha. And that's the point of the Ted Williams story, this idea of wiring. Was his greatness in his genes? That's the big question. Was it that one day he just picked up a bat and he became a natural hitter and he hit his way all the way to the Hall of Fame? Yeah, well, he had something. Ah, but was that something everything? I spoke with a journalist who has looked at the scientific research that's come out since the human genome was decoded. And he says that the emerging understanding among scientists now is that it's not about what you're born with. 
entirely. Remember that the hope 10 years ago when the human genome was decoded was that by having our genetic blueprint, we'd come to understand more clearly what makes us us. Yeah. Well, the idea was you could match the genes with specific talents. Right. All right. One-to-one sort of thing. Exactly. But what we found is that biology is just more complicated than that. It's not just genes that we need or good genes that we need for talent, but it's that stuff that prompts the genes to be expressed that seems to play a bigger role. Okay. So, Ted Williams? And other geniuses may not simply be the winners of a genetic lottery. Well, my name is Seth Shostak, and I can't dance. My name is Molly Bentley. My name is David Shank, and I'm author of this stupendous new book, The Genius in All of Us. The genius in all of us. Yes, biological determinism is out. That's the idea that the genes simply hold the instructions for what we become, and either we're born with that something or we're not. The problem with that is that um, that's not how genes work. Genes do have information, and they do have instructions, but they are instructions for how proteins are to be assembled. And the process of those instructions being issued is actually affected constantly by an interaction with environmental signals. But we've known for some time that who we are is a combination of genes and environment. So what's new here? Right, definitely. People have for a long time realized that it's nature and nurture. But the problem is that we we in the general public have kind of thought of nature being this distinct thing that comes first. You know, we inherit a certain amount of intelligence. We might inherit a, a musical ear or a, or a certain amount of athletic ability. And then the nurture comes in after that. And, and you know, and depending on what we are able to do with our environment, uh, you know, we might get a little better or a little worse or, or what have you. And so actually it's not correct. It's not biological biologically correct to say that you inherit a certain amount of intelligence or that you inherit a certain particular amount of athletic ability or music ability. All of these things are a part of a process which we can influence, which is quite different from saying we can control it. But the more we learn about it, the more we can influence that process. Okay. So how did Ted Williams, how was he able to hit those balls over the fence and and so many home runs? How did he do it? Well, if you look at Ted Williams' process, it's really just staggering. And the interesting thing is you can look at, at uh, extraordinary achievers in, in any arena. Look at Yo-Yo Ma, look at Michael Jordan, Ted Williams, any of these people. And if you look closely enough, you see an incredible, extraordinary process. In Ted Williams' case, here's a four- or five-year-old boy who at some point gets into his head that he wants to be the greatest hitter who's ever lived, and makes this decision apparently very early on that he's willing to do literally anything to get there. He spends every waking moment of his life, starting at age four or five, trying to become the greatest hitter that ever lived. Now, that may sound like kind of a cartoon exaggeration, but if you actually look at what he did, that is not an exaggeration. He he was a very poor boy. He would take his lunch money, and instead of eating lunch with that lunch money, he would pay it to his friends to go out into the outfield and shag balls for him, so that in a given 45-minute session, instead of hitting, you know, I don't know how many balls, every time you hit a ball, you got to go run and get it, it would be 10 or 20 times that amount of, of hits that he'd be able to get. He would bat all the way until the, the they turned out the lights at his nearby park two blocks from his home. He would go home and roll up some newspapers and swing that roll of newspapers until he fell asleep. He would get up the next morning and he would do it again. Well, what's interesting about what you said is when you use the word decision, that he made a decision to be a great ball player, whereas the image or the story that we like to tell ourselves of great achievers is that one day they discover they have this incredible talent. 
Yeah, and I just don't. I don't think that's borne out. Now that 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 isn't to say that people don't have realizations about about passions they have, about things that may feel easier to them or feel more natural. I don't want to take away any of that feeling. This is a very emotional thing, obviously. But that's very different, very, very different from the idea, the myth that that we just kind of tap into a certain natural talent that we just realize is there. So the idea is that people have this extraordinary drive. They're very dedicated. They're focused. They have what other researchers have referred to as grit, almost a single-minded pursuit of whatever it might be. So then where does that drive come? That's got to be innate, right? (laughs) Right. Well... (laughs) I hope you're playing a rhetorical game with me. I don't, I don't know. Somewhat, somewhat, okay. because not everybody has that drive. Right, absolutely right. So absolutely, it's absolutely true, of course, that some people you know, have this grit or this determination or this persistence or this resilience or whatever you want to call it, and, and some people don't. And then, of course, we want to know, well, where does it come from? Well, the interesting answer to that question, first of all, I have to acknowledge I don't know, you know exactly where it comes from, but the suspicion that's, that some people will have or kind of the quick rhetorical, um, uh, you know, play that will that will make that, oh, well, that part must be innate. Uh, we owe it to ourselves to dig a little deeper on that question, too. And it turns out that, you know, people develop that resilience and that grit at very different times in their lives. They, they develop it in response to very different events in their lives. It tends to come out of a certain amount of adversity. You see people developing it when they're four or five years old. You see people developing it, uh, Michael Jordan's case, when he was about 16 or 17. Before then, you look at Michael Jordan, he was a completely undistinguished athlete. And then he, at some point, developed this extraordinary, extraordinary ambition. So I think that we're entering now the realm of psychology and, and early child development and not so early child development. And, and I don't have all the answers to this, but again, I'm confident enough in, in how I understand biology and in looking at all these different elements which, which fit so nicely together that this is another story of process. Well, let's talk more about this interaction between genes and the environment. And to do that, we'll say just a bit about how genes work. So if you could just explain to us in 60 seconds or less how genes work, No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) You have this great metaphor in your book of genes not as blueprints, which is what we hear so much, but genes uh, as knobs and switches. And in fact, the photograph that's in your book, I recognize because it's a picture of a sound mixing board, and I have one right here in front of me. So I'm looking at all these knobs and switches. So David, how are these knobs and switches like my genes? Yeah. So the old idea of genes was that the genes were blueprints that had the finished information of what a trait is supposed to look like. And that kind of connotes this idea that a a gene is essentially kind of a dumb object, that it just kind of always gives the same information and it always is going to have the same end. But instead, the way we understand genes now is that they get turned on and off. They get turned up and down. They have this dynamic interaction. They call it gene expression. So you can have the same gene in one person. You can have a, a gene in one person. You have the exact same gene in another person. And the result of those two genes are going to be very different depending on the moment-to-moment environment that is kind of surrounding the cell of that particular gene, because one gene is going to get expressed more often in a certain way than than the gene in the other person, and consequently you're going to have you're going to have a different result. Okay, so if I move this knob here, this controls my volume just by moving it like that. See, my volume goes up. I don't know if you can hear that. I can bring it right back down. Okay, so that's a gene. Can you give me an example of what would affect that gene? 
Um, well, the the interesting thing, as I understand it, is there's almost nothing that wouldn't affect that gene. And I don't I don't want to use the word control because I'm I don't mean to say that we're ever either now or ever going to be in the the realm of perfectly controlling our own genetic expression. But you can talk to any you know uh, leading geneticists out there, and they will say the name of the game is how these genes are getting turned on and off, how they're getting expressed. And so you're going to have gene A doing one thing in one environment, and you're going to have the exact same gene end up doing a different thing in a different environment. Well, these different environments are just fascinating because you write that diet and disease can affect how genes are expressed and that a single case of diarrhea or measles can affect genes. That's right. And that came in the context of, of learning about height. We tend to think of height as being just determined by our genes, that I've got genes inside me that just have this instruction that I was going to be five foot eight and three quarters inches tall or whatever I am. In fact, it's quite likely that I could have been quite a di- quite a different number of, of different heights. That that the, the potential for what I for my actual height is quite wide, depending on the environment that I was uh, raised in from the very first moment of of conception onward. Um, yes, stress, smoking, diet, even ideas we have. Anything that is going on in our bodies that affects the the chemistry of our bodies, the hormonal chemistry, is going to impact gene expression. Okay, well, looking at physical attributes, let's look at the runners and some remarkable physical attributes of some Olympic runners. Um, The Kenyan runners are the ones that come to the fore. These are extraordinary long-distance runners. Yes, they are. How do you explain that? (laughs) Actually, I know how you explain it because I read the book, but it's... But it's fascinating. Okay, I'll cut to what the chase is. They train incredibly intensely, and they're also raised in a culture, these young boys and girls, where running is what you do. Running is what you do, like that. Like batting is what Ted Williams did. It is. It is everything, and it is. It's the be all and end all. And um, and then there's one other element to, to the the Kenyan running culture. It's not just that running is what they do, and that they train hard and everything. There is a certain culture of extreme training there that actually is willing culturally to sacrifice individuals. So they train so many kids so hard in running now in this particular part of Kenya. It's actually not all of Kenya, but this particular part of Kenya that the idea, the implicit idea is they are willing to injure a certain number of kids with this extreme training with the understanding that this that exact same level of extreme training is going to produce extraordinary running in and 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 thankfully non-injured people so that so the injured people are essentially sacrificing for the culture and then some other people emerge and become these you know these great world renowned runners well i was struck that the examples that of geniuses that you cite in your book were all male Ted Williams and Michael Jordan, Mozart, Einstein, and even the the musician Brian Eno. Now, Mozart's sister is included, but really only as an influence on her more famous brother. Right. Any reason for that? I can't stand women. I, you know, why? why? <laughs> no, I think uh, this is this was a problem in my chess book, too. And I think, I mean, I'm going to be charitable to myself, and, and you can <laughs> you can tell me if, if the uh, explanation is... is is being too kind to myself, but we're, when we're talking about history, when we're talking about achievements, at least historically, you're looking back and you're not seeing uh, many extraordinary achievements by women, I think for two reasons. Number one, for cultural reasons, that women just weren't allowed to become great achievers. They were sent to do other things. And then also they tended not to get recognized. So we only have a couple of 
really extraordinary examples of historical, you know, musical geniuses. And Mozart happens to be the kind of archetypal one. And so that's the one that I chose to explore. Um, his, as you mentioned, his sister was an extraordinary musician and might well have done things as great as Mozart, but culturally, that really wasn't possible. She she couldn't really aspire to be a professional musician of any kind because of how women were treated in her society. So she she became, she was a great child prodigy on the, on the uh, I think it was the violin, and helped to become a part of Mozart's early story and actually be, was a part of his life as long as he lived, but, but didn't end up becoming a professional musician, either as a, as a player or a composer. We'll hear more from David Schenk later about the role of an exciting and bizarre area of study related to all of this. It's called epigenetics. It helps shape who we are. And we'll also meet a man who decoded his own genome. Epigenetics. Sounds like genetics with heavy dramatic music. Okay, Seth, what do you think, though, of the argument so far? You've been hearing David Shank talk about this idea that genes play a role in exceptional talent, but so much is whether or not that environment allows them to be expressed. I'm not convinced yet. It just seems to me that some people are born with top-shelf DNA. Well, what talent were you born with? I hear that it's not dancing or baseball. Yeah, well, I'm trying to figure it out. I think some things, imagination. I always had a lot of imagination. In fact, I rated number two in a class of a thousand kids in imagination. I couldn't imagine who was number one, and maybe that's why I came in number two. Wait, they tested you on imagination? They how, did. How did they do that? Well, they gave us a, a sheet of paper, and it had a grid of nine squares on it with some lines and circles and whatever drawn into those squares, and the idea was to complete the picture. And so, you know, you were given a certain amount of time to complete the pictures and all nine squares, and that's what I did. What if all you could draw was a blank? Yeah, well, I can't remember what it was I drew. But anyhow, I filled in the form, and I was number two in imagination. And, and, you know, that's led me to find some comfort in what Einstein apparently once said, that imagination was more important than intellect. And speaking of Einstein... I was. Yes, you were. We'll find out what scientists have discovered about the secrets of his genius when they opened up his brain after he died. Well, I've always said that the best time to open up anybody's brain is after they've died. You're listening to Written in Code on Big Picture Science. Your ears are attuned to Written in Code on Big Picture Science, but it doesn't take a genius to tell you that. Of course, it does take a genius to tell you this. The equation E is equal mc squared in which energy is It's still hard to shake the idea that we aren't born with greatness. The most often used example is Einstein. Right. Well, people know a little bit about his background. I mean, they usually know that he worked at the patent office in Switzerland and that he had a bit of difficulty getting a job in academia and stuff like that. And then he went on to win the Nobel Prize for something most people have never even heard of, the photoelectric effect, although they have heard of relativity equals mc squared and all that sort of stuff. So, Here's a guy who seems like a regular schmo, and then it turns out that he's the greatest brain of the 20th century. And why was his brain so great? Well, after Einstein died, researchers had a chance to find out. His brain was removed and studied. Actually, it was passed around quite a bit, cut into many pieces, and examined by many researchers who all wanted a hint as to... What that thing was that allowed him to picture in his mind. He wasn't writing equations. He was visualizing this, that time and space 
were relative, which, of course, led to the special theory of relativity. I mean, can you imagine that? You would think I could imagine it since I came in second place in the imagination test. The research into Einstein's exceptional intellect has gone on since his death in 1955. And one of those brain researchers, brainy researchers, is anthropologist Dean Falk, who has more recently studied photographs of the physicist's brain and compared it to what the brains of people less distinguished look like. Dean, you've had a chance to study Albert Einstein's brain, and you did it working from photographs, not from the brain, right? Yes. Okay, well, why was that? Was it, couldn't you find the brain? Well, no, I couldn't find the brain because in 1955, when Einstein died, it was removed from his skull, and it was processed, and that included chopping it up into pieces and into sections. So I had to work with photographs. These photographs were made shortly after his death, I assume. Yes, they were. Okay. And you identified a number of features that were unusual, right? Can you tell me what was unusual about his brain? I mean, was it bigger than an average brain? No. Einstein's brain was an average size. What was unusual were the patterns of the grooves in the cerebral cortex or the outside part of the brain. Can you describe what was unusual? I mean, did he have more grooves? Was he groovier than your average brain, or was he <laughs> less groovy? What, what was the deal? He, if anything, was uh, longer grooved. Some of the grooves in his brain flowed together, and this is highly unusual in most people. And this happened particularly around the parts of the brain that is where one experiences the initial sensations or sensory information that comes into the brain and also the motor cortex, which is important for movement. So his sensory motor cortex was highly unusual. Well, you could tell this by just looking at it. I mean, this, this wasn't some sort of microscopic analysis. You could, you could look at it and see this. Yes. Okay, well, can you describe it? If I, if I looked at a photograph of his brain next to a photograph of a random person walk on the streets here, uh-huh. would something strike me right away as different, or is it very subtle? If you're aware of focal patterns, it would be very striking to you. The parts of the sensory motor strip were very big compared to other people, and this caused the grooves to take on a different pattern. He had an unusual feature in the part of the motor cortex, which controls the hand on the opposite side. And this has been sort of nicknamed the knob. And in Einstein's case, there was this huge knob that you rarely see on the surface of the brain, which was representation for the left hand. And that was very interesting because this is a feature that sometimes shows up in string players, musicians who are string players as Einstein was. Well, now, wait a minute. Now, this knob, I take it that's sort of a bump on the brain there that's associated with the use of his left hand. Yes. And that's, I guess, the the hand you would use for fingering a, a violin, right? Exactly. Okay. Uh, but that might not have been something he was born with. I mean, he was playing the violin from a very early age. Yes. He started taking lessons when he was six and studied until he was 14 and then continued to play the violin all of his life. And there's a study, 2006 or 2007 study, uh, using magnetic resonance imaging, which has shown that string players with that kind of history will have this knob in the right hemisphere, even though they're right-handed. And this controls the left hand. So it likely 
had to do with Einstein's intense training on the violin as a child, although that, of course, does not rule out a genetic component. Well, it sounds like this bump is not, if you will, the smoking bump that would, <laughs> would tell you that, you know, all you need is this bump and you've got a you know, future yeah. assured uh, as a Nobel Prize winning scientist. But what about these other features you mentioned? Yes. I think you called them falsi? Falsi. Those are the um, grooves that separate the convolutions of the brain. And Einstein's were unusual also in other parts of the sensory and motor cortex, for instance, in an area that we know is important for language, which is a little bit lower on the brain. Einstein had a very unusual configuration that I've estimated might occur in one out of 500 people, which to me is surprisingly frequent. But this is in a part of the brain that is important for language. And Einstein had difficulty as a child learning language. He was a late speaker, and so I can only speculate, but it's reason speculation to suggest that his unusual pattern of convolutions in these language-related areas may have had something to do with that. And, and putting the two things we've talked about together, what's interesting is that Einstein, when he was stuck on a physics problem, would go play his violin for a while, and he reputedly would uh, receive inspiration. It would be like a eureka moment with respect to the physics problem. He would get that from the music. But there's still the big mystery here. I mean, okay, so he had some things that were different about his brain that you've already mentioned. These are some macroscopic features. These are things you can see in a photo of his brain. This isn't a matter of getting down in there with a, you know, a microscope and seeing how everything's wired. Uh, But you said something like one in 500 people have this groove pattern, but, you know, they don't all win the Nobel Prize. In fact, I assume that most of them might end up doing things that are fairly unremarkable. I mean, what's yes. what's the explanation? Yes. Theoretically, you might find this same thing on both sides of the brain in one of 500 people, which surprised me because to me that's not that unusual. I mean, Einstein we think of as one in a billion, right? But this major feature theoretically occurs much more often than I would have thought. And that made me wonder, are there other people in the world that have the neurological equipment, if you will, to be geniuses, uh, where it hasn't been brought to fruition because of where they live, they haven't had the environmental opportunities Einstein may have been the right person with the right basic equipment living under the right circumstances because he he did have a family life that allowed him to really bring to fruition the potential that he had in that brain. And and what is more than the musical training, right? Weren't uh, his dad and his uncle uh, mechanics? Yes. um, His dad was an engineer and with his uncle, you know, opened up a company that manufactured electrical equipment. One of the things that happened was when Einstein was four, and he was barely speaking at that point, his father gave him a pocket compass. Mm. And Einstein was fascinated with the thought that there was some invisible force moving the needle on that compass. And it had a huge impact. That, That curiosity he had had a huge impact on his intellectual development. And eventually, you know, he he won the uh, Nobel Prize for his work on the photoelectric effect, not relativity. And, you know, I think you can trace that back to when he was four. 
what was it about Einstein's method of thinking that was so different? Well, you know, he was asked how he thought, and he said, well, I don't think in words. I think in sensory impressions, including visual images. So he wasn't saying that he thought strictly in visual images either. You know, I wish they'd quizzed him more. There's not very much in the literature on that. But when he was told that many people think very much in words, he laughed. Well, there's a story that the way he came up with his ideas about special relativity was imagining himself riding on a beam of light. You know, it's it's a picture kind of thing rather than, you know, equations or words or something like that. So the family and the circumstances under which he lived and the music lessons all, you know, allowed him to really develop the potential that he was born with. Well, so there may be numbers of other people out there that have that potential, but they just don't live in the right time or the right place or under the right circumstances. I wonder if over, like, in Ethiopia, you know, out in the desert with these nomads, a place that I sometimes go, I wonder if there are potential, you know, Einsteins there that just don't have the uh, access to the resources that we do. So perhaps the lesson here is that while everybody thinks about how we might genetically re-engineer Homo sapiens, maybe the easier thing to do is just to make sure that everybody gets a good chance, a good opportunity to use whatever genetic inheritance they've acquired. Yes, agreed. (laughs) Okay, well, Dean Falk, thank you so very much for talking with me today. Thank you, Seth. Dean Falk's brain is in one piece in her head and thinking the thoughts of an anthropologist and senior scholar at the School for Advanced Research in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay, so environment is key to cerebral success. Yeah, and that's this area of study, kind of new area of study, called epigenetics. Well, that sounds like genetics set to some really dramatic music. (laughs) Yeah, and you said that earlier, Seth, not very imaginative for someone who won an award in that. Anyway, epigenetics is the study of what activates genes, what turns them on and what turns them off. Now, journalist David Schenk also talked about this. And get this, because I was stunned to learn this. You can actually affect how your genes are expressed and then pass that down to your children before your children are born. So the idea is that not only do your parents, or you as parents, pass along your genes to your children, but these genes have been influenced by the 30 years or whatever that your parents have been alive before they even had you. So their experiences, their stresses, environmental exposure, whatever, are all passed on as well in the form of epigenetic tags. Now, David, one idea that stunned me is this whole idea that lifestyle can actually not just affect how genes are expressed during our lifetime, but heredity as well, what we pass to our children. Now, this is really fascinating, and it gets into the whole area of epigenetics and epigenomes. Yes. Have I pronounced those correctly? Yes, you have. Okay. And Want to give us an introduction? This th- is really, this is where it gets pretty weird. <laughs> so epigenetics taps into and reignites an idea that goes back to this scientist named Lamarck, who came actually before Darwin, who was one of the people that talked about this This weird idea, which has been uh, until very recently kind of considered a a joke in science, that we could affect our own biology and our progeny by our own behaviors. That is, that uh, the the great example that that he kind of trumped in his life was that giraffes, by reaching for the high leaves on the trees, extended their necks and, more importantly, would somehow pass on this uh, biological tendency for necks to be longer to their children and the children after them. 
And that idea really was not accepted. It was, we instead went with this idea, which I think is obviously very important and true, that uh, genes are more about uh, random mutation. And so it's not our behaviors that, that, that create our, our biology and, and pass that down. So the idea is what we're doing now, what you and I are doing now with our lives, how we live our lives, the environments that we're exposed to, are changing our genes so that our children will be passed on these new genes that were actually different from the genes we were born with? Well, um, it's, it's almost that. The genes themselves famously stay the same. That part is true. So you're getting 50% of your genes from your father and 50% of the genes from your mother, and those are the same genes unless there is some sort of random mutation in there, which is generally unlikely from person to person. What you're getting also, though, from your parents is the stuff that wraps around the genes, which they call the epigenome. And that stuff actually plays a very important role in genetic expression in helping uh, to decide when the genes get turned on and off. So it turns out that the way you live your life before you have children, that is, whether you smoke or the kind of diet you have, and we're really not sure what else, but potentially a lot of other things that go into your life, apparently affect the epigenome and affect the epigenome that you then pass on that surrounds the genes to your kids, and that those effects can actually be lasting even beyond a single generation, that they might be multiple generations. There's a, a great example of a certain flower which has kept an epigenetic change over many, 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 many generations. It, it more or less looks permanent now, even though the change they've determined is not actually in the genes, it's in the epigenome. Okay, so the epigenome is stuff. It's a thing. I mean, it's a, this packaging that surrounds the DNA. That's right. It has a material substance to it, and it influences how DNA is expressed. That's right. Now, do we know how to influence it? Well, we have some ideas, <laughs> I guess. You know. We have just the very, very beginnings of a sense that we do influence it. But by no means do I know whether I'm going to, uh, you know, what genes, what part of my epigenome I'm going to be able to change or I'm going to be changing by certain foods that I eat or or cigarettes that I decide to smoke or not smoke. We just know that there have been studies. I'm mentioning those two things because we know that nutrition is involved. We know that things like smoking, environmental things like that, can change the, the epigenome. So it's just the very, very beginning of the science. But it's, it's uh, almost surely going to take us to some very, very interesting places in the years to come. Well, is there another genomic revolution around the corner? I mean, we're still in one now because we're still, you know, mapping genomes as fast as we can of all sorts of creatures. But could there be another one in which the epigenome is mapped and can it be mapped? I don't know about mapped, but everything else you said, the answer is yes, without a doubt. This has become, epigenetics have become a part of, of the genetic revolution, and that's here to stay. I mean, it's, it's just very clear that epigenetics are a part of this whole story, and we've got a long way to go to learn, you know, the particulars of it, but it, epigenetics are going to lead to new drugs. Epigenetics are going to lead to new behaviors, for sure. Thank you, David. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed this. David Schenk's genes, plus his environment and office somewhere, allowed for his success, which is a book. The Genius in All of Us, Why Everything You've Been Told About Genetics, Talent, and IQ is Wrong. Up next, a man who knows a thing or two about genes, since he led one of the programs that decoded the human genome 10 years back. He now runs the National Institutes of Health, NIH. Who is he? Well, the answer is the name of a European country, possessive plus the kind of radio show which, unlike ours, will take your question on air.
Yep, it's written in code on Big Picture Science. Decode that. It's Big Picture Science. Okay, back to our coded clue there. Our next guest led the public program to sequence the human genome 10 years back, and he now runs the NIH, National Institutes of Health. His name is the name of a European country possessive, plus the type of radio shows that, unlike ours, take questions from listeners. Francis Collins. Did you get it? I ran into him at a recent scientific meeting, literally saw him passing in the hall, and grabbed him for an impromptu interview because... Although his sequencing project cost hundreds of millions of dollars, the price is coming down. And now with a focus turning to the sequencing of individual genomes, I just wondered how long it would be before you and I can afford to have all billion letters of our genomes looked at up close. The cost seems to drop by a factor of two about every nine months. So this is an exponential curve that is outstripping Moore's law in terms of the speed of reduction in cost, which means we've gone from that first genome, which cost about $300 million in 2003, now to an average cost of doing a complete genome that's in the neighborhood of eight to $10,000. And it's going to keep going down. Okay, so when is it going to become uh, cheaper than uh, going to Las Vegas for the weekend? Depends on how much you spend in Las Vegas, I guess, but we're already getting pretty close for some of the high rollers, and pretty soon the average person would do better off to get their genome sequenced. It'll be under $1,000 in the next three or four years, and many people have it in their mind that that's sort of a magic number, below which it will become very compelling to actually just offer this to all of us, get that information in our medical record, and be prepared to use it. Well, let me follow up on that, because let's assume that, say, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, everybody gets their, essentially, everybody gets their genome sequence. There, there are two obvious questions. Is that going to improve their health? And secondly, are they going to be able to get health insurance? Will it improve their health? Can, can we say, oh, look, you're, you're, you have proclivities for this, that, and the other, and we're going to take proactive measures? It certainly is a window into what your risks for disease might be. Family history is, of course, something we've been using for a long time to make those predictions, and that is a reflection of your DNA. But once we really identify all of the hereditary risks for disease at the DNA level, you can probably do a bit better with that than you can with family history. We're not there yet, but we'll get there. And in terms of risks of losing your insurance, I'm happy to say with the passage of the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act in May of 2008, that is now illegal. You cannot have that information used against you in health insurance or in the workplace. One other thing, it, it was assumed, I, I think, that there would be a one-to-one -one correlation between defects in certain parts of the human genome and certain diseases. And all you'd have to do is just look through the map and say, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. This person's going to die of heart disease or something. Uh, but it hasn't turned out to be that simple. I think it was naive to think it was going to be simple. I mean, we've studied families for a long time for common diseases like diabetes and heart disease and cancer, and with some exceptions, uh, most of the time you can be pretty clear just by looking at pedigrees that this is not a single gene disorder. Huntington's disease is the exception uh, where you have that kind of single gene that has a very predictable effect. Most common diseases aren't like that. What we're now learning is just how complex and heterogeneous the genetic factors are, dozens of them for many common diseases each one with a small effect, but adding up, depending on the throw of the dice involved in your conception, to something that might be a high risk or an average risk or a low risk. Finally, Francis, looking at the long-term view, looking 100 years down the pike, uh, do you think we'll be able to re-engineer our DNA to the point where we'll be defect-free, something that the auto manufacturers haven't managed to do, but that maybe we could do for our, our successors? 
I think it's hard to look more than 10 years ahead in a field that's moving so quickly. So 100 years boggles my mind. I have a hard time imagining that. I think we will get pretty good at coming up with ways to prevent diseases like cancer and heart disease and diabetes, but it will never be perfect because other things will influence that, like the environment, like our own free will decisions about whether we're going to smoke or drink too much alcohol or, as I do, ride a motorcycle to work and run the likelihood of crashing into a tree. The death rate will still be one per person despite our best efforts. Francis Collins, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Francis Collins is a geneticist who led the sequencing of the human genome with the Human Genome Project. He's now the director of the National Institutes of Health. As Dr. Collins said, the era of personalized medicine is just on the horizon. And there's nothing more personal than having your genome decoded and doing it yourself. Which is what biophysicist Stephen Quake did. Biophysicist because he's interested in the interplay of biology, physics, and biotechnology. He provided the biology for his recent experiment in the form of his own DNA. And the physics? Well, as an engineer, he built a new device that allowed him to sequence his own DNA at his lab at Stanford University for less than $50,000. And in under a week, the Human Genome Project, for comparison, took 10 years. Okay, so the day is getting closer when we can all do this. But what would be the consequences of receiving the information that your genetic code is A-T-T-C-A-G-A, not A-T-T-G-A-C-A, as he'd hoped? But first, Molly wanted to know how Stephen got his DNA. So how did you do this? Well, well first of all, what part of your body did you use? Was it skin? Or blood. 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 Yeah. That was the hardest part. I'm a needle-phobe, and... There were a lot of jokes about that in the lab. And so when your blood was taken, did you have to look the other way because you're a little squeamish? I was fully reclined with uh, <laughs> a wet uh, washcloth on my head. <laughs> they were very gentle with me. Okay, so then you have your own blood, and then what do you do to sequence it? So you uh, separate the lymphocytes and purify the DNA from them, and then that DNA gets prepared into what's called a library, which basically means it's cut up into little pieces and the ends are labeled in a certain way so they can be attached to the sequencer. Then those molecules in the library are loaded onto a sequencer, which is a fairly large instrument about the size of a fridge freezer. And uh, the sequencer then goes to work. You go away for a week, come back, and get a lot of sequence out at the other end. Now, I understand that your genome sequencing project was under $50,000, is that right? That's right. And the prices continue to uh, change dramatically over time. I, now we're doing it for about half that cost, and the expectation is that by the end of the year it'll be down to about $10,000 a genome or less. Now, maybe it'll get to the point where everybody can afford their own genome sequencing, but not everybody can build the equipment to actually sequence their own DNA, but you did. You you created some technology to do this yourself. Yeah, that's right. And that's sort of what sparked my interest is that I had been involved in developing a very fast DNA sequencer, in fact, one that worked by sequencing single molecules, and wanted to prove that it actually could be used to sequence entire human genomes. Then I ended up founding a company to commercialize it, and I took their first commercial product, bought it here at Stanford, and used that instrument to do the sequencing. Okay, so you're line back and you're having blood drawn and your genome is about to be sequenced. Were you nervous? Yes, because, you know, there was, I would say, uh, it'd be fair to say, considerable uncertainty in the community over whether the particular sequencer I helped develop would be able to sequence a human genome. And people complained about the length, technical details, like the read length and error rates and things like that. And so, uh, you know, I think most people would have actually doubted that it could be done. So you were nervous about whether or not your invention would work, whether the technology would work, not whether 
you might uncover something in your own genome that would give you pause. I mean, some people would be nervous about knowing what's actually in their DNA. Yeah, that's right. It's pretty interesting. You know, the world divides into two kinds of people, those that don't want to know and those that do. And I happen to fall on the ones that do and view it as data to help me make decisions about how to live my life. Now, were you expecting something to turn up just because of family history? Uh... Well, everybody's got skeletons in their genetic closet. You know, pretty much every individual has half a dozen or a dozen rare mutations that are linked to some sort of disease state. They're either carriers or they have it. And so I knew there'd be something that turned up. And uh, sure enough, there was. And in fact, it did link into family history in a, in a sort of interesting way. It has to do with the cardiomyopathy or heart disease. You know, it's, uh, I think, a good example of the power of the genome in medicine, which is that for any given person, unless there's a very strong family history, there's no way to find those skeletons unless you sequence the genome. And once you know them, you can go and, and seek help. And so in my case, you know, I went to see a cardiologist, and he said, oh, we should do an ultrasound echocardiogram to see what the state of your heart is today and whether these are affecting the physiology of your heart. And so we did the tests and came back okay. What does it mean to say that that turned up in, in your genome? There was a gene or a set of yep. genes? There were some specific mutations in genes related to the heart that I have that the average person doesn't, and they are associated with various diseases down the road. And so it's something that you would monitor me for more frequently than you would somebody who didn't have those mutations. So for you, you have this particular gene, but then also it depends on how you live your life, and you're a pretty healthy person. That's what the doctor told me. They put me on their little exercise wheel, and yeah. I did okay. That's right. And so, uh, you know, one, I think, way the genome can be used is as a way to help make lifestyle choices. You know, if you're at high risk for certain things, you will avoid them or exercise more or try to control the environmental components of the things you're at risk for because the genome is not destiny, and environment and personal choices play an important role. And you can use it as a guide, I would say, more than as your destiny. So for you, what are you going to do? Are you going to go on statins, which I understand your doctor prescribed? What's it like to have your whole personal medical history out there in the, in the press? So well, you know, I'm a pretty gregarious person, so I enjoy the debates. And yeah, this idea that uh, I'm not listening to the doctor after going through all this trouble to sequence my genome and get the clinical annotation. You know, I did listen to the doctor on getting the ultrasound echocardiogram done. But on the statins, I'm reserving judgment, to be honest, because you know, I just, I'm not comfortable taking a pill every day for the rest of my life. It's not clear that the benefit from doing it is that great. These are drugs that have been very heavily marketed by the pharmaceutical industry and you know I think some of the basic science and some of the side effects tend to get lost in all that. So this was all revealed in your genome too, what yes. drugs, you, yes. how they might yes. um, affect you in your personal chemistry. And this is the era you're describing of personalized medicine, what's down the road, where you take a look at a person's genes but then also factor in how those genes are being expressed and also personal chemistry. I mean it's quite complicated. because. Correct. Is it possible you could have a gene or some combination of genes that would make you resistant to statins, even if you took them yes. for your heart? Yes. As it turns out, I'm in the responder category, so they so looked you know at it, that. and yes, I have a mutation which says I'm a responder, which is good to know. But again, you know, you, you don't know so much about the side effects. I don't think those have been so well characterized. People know they're there, and certainly the genetic components of the of the side effects, I think, are not that well characterized at the moment. Why is it that the mutations, the one variation in the genes, always leads to something we don't want? Why, do, why doesn't it lead to some, I don't know, incredible ability or talent or... Well, there's a bit of a literature bias there. The NIH doesn't fund studies to understand the genetic basis of happiness and things like that, and so it's only about things that make you sick. 
Although it is amusing, you know, as I was going through the annotation, I found several mutations linked to higher intelligence, and that made me feel really good, until I went and read the papers and realized that it was all nonsense and not something that was usefully interpretable for an individual. What's interesting about mutations is that they're mutations only for a short period of time, aren't they? Because if they get passed down for generation, 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 then it becomes part of the flow of evolution. Yes, absolutely. So there's this, uh, on the evolutionary timescale, this this sort of dance where uh, mutations can get fixed and survive, and if they're beneficial, uh, or if they're linked to something beneficial, can end up taking over a population. And, you know, the the distinction between disease and beneficial is one that often changes with time. So many of the hemoglobinopathies, like sickle cell anemia and thalassemia, which are now regarded as as medical problems uh, were selected upon by evolution to be actual favorable traits that help people resist malaria. And so, you know, as we've eradicated malaria, they become not favorable, but viewed in a negative light. And so it's all in the eye of the beholder, even at that level. And finally, you have a child who's a young child. When he goes to the doctor in, say, 30 years from now, and he says he wants to have his genome sequenced, what can he expect when he walks in? How do you see that this whole uh, field will have changed in 30 years or so? In 30 years, he will have a lot more information about what the genome means, for sure. And uh, when he goes to the pharmacy, he won't get just the same pills everyone else does. They'll be tuned to be the right dose for him, personally, based on his genome. That'll be mapped right in. So the level at which drugs are prescribed will totally change and will incorporate that. And his physical will be different every year because uh, he'll be getting tests that are tuned to his particular risk profile. Okay, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Stephen Quake is a biophysicist at Stanford University in California. So, Seth, are you ready to have your genome sequenced if you could do it today, if you could afford it and could have it done? You know, I don't know, Molly. I really don't because, you know, suppose it turns out that uh, you have this predisposition for some dread disease and, you know, there's an 80% chance that you're going to get it, what would that do to your life? You'd be worrying about it day and night for the, for the rest of your days. I mean, I'm not sure I'd want to know that. Yeah, I feel like I'm not ready either. On the other hand, you might discover that you have a gene for imaginative drawings. <laughs> well, that would be a surprise, at least. Maybe I could exploit that somehow. <laughs> we want to thank the molecules of deoxyribonucleic acid that comprise Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute. We're looking for life elsewhere, and the universe requires some thought as to what forms it might take and the nature of life's elemental building blocks, however tiny they may be.